Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to Bible class here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. Especially we announce that for those who are glad to have with us listening on air or online at kfua.org. Those present know my name is Pastor Kevin Thompson. I'm pleased to be here with you this morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you have blessed us with another day. Another day here in your kingdom in this world. We thank you for this blessing. We pray that you would use us today in the many ways that you have for us, the many of which we are not even aware. We pray now especially that you would bless us in our time together to study your holy word, that it may continue to strengthen us in faith towards you. Lord, we pray these things and all things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It's good to be here with you. Okay, good. So we're going to get started today. And as always is our custom here in this class, we will be looking at and studying the readings for next Sunday. Before we get into next Sunday's reading, let's just give you a note of where we're at today. Today is the last Sunday in the church year, the last Sunday on the church calendar. And in fact, just a note, I know Pastor Thomas would have covered this last week, um, but Today, in our worship services, we are actually using the readings for what's called Christ the King Sunday. So, as we'll get into it today in our study for the readings next week, between the end of the church year, and then also between the themes that are brought up in Advent, there tends to be a lot of end times discussion. So in order to give you another different way to uh, to hear from God and His Word, other than just focusing on end times for about, I don't know, four to six weeks in a row... Pastor Thomas decided to elect last week that uh, today we will be discussing in worship Christ the King. So today's worship here at St. Paul's is all about looking how Christ is the King. Different than the earthly kings, way different than the kings we would expect. He comes in this world as a humble and gracious King. So that being said, next week we start Advent. So before we dive into the, the scripture readings, let's just think again about what Advent is and the themes that it will bring to us. I know for many of us, it's pretty basic, pretty much review because... How many times have we been through Advent? I'm sure you probably could tell me more times than I've been through Advent. But nonetheless, we, sit, we think about an Advent, okay? And the word Advent means coming. It's actually translated to, to mean coming. And we, we think about an Advent, how Christ comes in primarily three different ways. Okay, so the first being Christ comes into this world in the flesh, which is generally tends to be the primary focus of Advent because we think about Advent as primarily driving us towards Christmas Day, celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. He comes in this flesh into this world as a baby boy. That's his first coming, coming into this world in the flesh. Okay? The second being that he comes into this world every single day. And especially we think about him coming to us in this world every day through his holy word and through his sacrament. Especially then, as uh, right in front of us here in our gym, uh, we have Holy Communion set up for a worship service later. He comes to us through his word and his sacraments, especially through his body and blood given and shed for us. And the third coming of Jesus Christ is on that last day. Which is where we get this focus in Advent, of which many people are thinking, okay, Christmas and baby Jesus and, and the hymns, and like, all of a sudden the world's going to end. People are like, whoa, where'd that come from? Well, because Advent, we, think, we do think about how we look forward to that day. And I know you've heard this before, but again, that that day is not a day to dread or push off and further, but rather say, Lord Jesus, come soon, come quickly, because we look forward to that day. So, 
uh, as I was preparing this, I was thinking, I was talking about Advent, and then I realized the Advent wreath, because we're looking next week, the Advent wreath is not yet set up here. So we'll be able to, we'll have our visual next week, but just to again think about that next week we'll have our Advent wreath set up when we go through the candles and we think about this, um, certain emphases we can have in Advent. And the first week, the emphasis is prophecy or hope. So next week, especially, we will be looking at prophecy and hope, which obviously our scripture readings direct us to. Enough of me talking, let's get into God's word and let him speak to us. Next week, we will first read for our Old Testament lesson, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. I'll read those verses for us. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall exercise justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. Here ends our reading for next week. A rather brief reading, but we dig into the prophet Jeremiah. And just a reminder, let's think about who Jeremiah is. Jeremiah is again a prophet, so sent by God, a man sent by God to declare God's word to the people. And especially as we look through the entire book of Jeremiah, not necessarily all here in our three short verses that we have for next week, but the book of Jeremiah has a few main purposes that you can think about and remember. One is that the, his book, his words sent by God are to call Judah to repentance. The people who are erring in their own ways and so it's this way that God sent his word to the people of Judah so they would repent of their ways and return to the Lord. Second, a main purpose is to announce the Babylonian exile. That the people will be carried off into exile as a way of the discipline and, and judgment of God being carried out. And then the last, which will tie in especially to what we're looking at next week, is he prophesies this new covenant. Okay? So this new covenant that this community, this community in God, followers of God, they will live in peace after that exile. So it doesn't negate that the exile is going to happen. The prophet comes, he speaks these harsh words of judgment, tells them the things that will come. But he also, along with that, tells of this promise, this new covenant, the great uh, peace that the people will have later on, that God will bring afterwards. Okay, and, and I, I, I should clarify something. Today, the reading of, of our focus here is not specifically the new covenant um, exactly. If you wish to look at that, it's Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. That's specifically the new covenant. And we tend to read that later on in the year, especially focusing on the, the new covenant. And, and we see its strong ties to the Lord's Supper, that he establishes his new covenant through the, the Lord's uh, body and blood. But the reading here from chapter 33 has very strong connections, very tied to this new covenant, uh, nonetheless. Okay, so we look at this and dig a little bit deeper. Verse 14, look with me there, if you would. Verse 14, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Again, reminder, declares the Lord. This is God's word. It's not just some prophet, Jeremiah, I'm going off my own, I'm going to say what I want, when I want. This is fun to say. This is God's word. This is God declaring his word. When I fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And here the significance is Israel and Judah. Okay, if you look back throughout the history of God's people, it was always the Israelites. They were the chosen people. God's promise, his covenant with the Israelites. They were the ones that he chose, he set apart. 
It's not negating what God did, but here God is showing that his promise isn't going to come just to the Israelites, but also to the Judaites, Judahites, to all of them, Israel and Judah. So it's not just this limited promise anymore, but already we're seeing this focus start to shift to God's promise for all people. Okay? Now it doesn't say that as explicitly. It's not saying, here's my promise for all people, but this reference Israel and Judah directs us to how, look, his promise is not just for a limited part of this world. It's going to be for all people in this world. Verse 15. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous, righteous branch to spring up for Jeremiah. Okay. So this righteous branch from Jeremiah. This, if you wish to write it down and, and look at it on your own later, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 and 6. Here in this verse, uh, verse 15, directs us back to that chapter of Jeremiah, chapter 23, in which this righteous branch of, of David is already brought up. And so then here, about 10 chapters later, Jeremiah gets into it more deeply, talking about how God is going to establish his messianic kingdom here on this earth. His messianic kingdom. Now remember, this term Messiah, messianic coming from Messiah, to be the anointed one. The one that God has chosen, he has sent, he has anointed for his purposes and for his work. In fact, he's going to send his Messiah into this world. Establish that messianic kingdom. The kingdom that's of the anointed one. And that kingdom, as we'll get into more with our other readings, and we are here today on Christ the King Sunday, is far different than any other kingdom there is in this world. Okay? It's very different. And that's the other thing that, as you hear these words from Jeremiah 33, I encourage you to hear. Is that he talks about this kingdom coming, especially if you're in your Old Testament, you have people who would have heard this more in that context. They're thinking, okay, there were kings in Israel. Well, their kings are going to compare far differently than who this Messiah, the Messianic kingdom, will be. Because their kings weren't righteous. They weren't perfect. How many times could you see in the, in the scriptures... Kings who maybe they did good in the sight of the Lord for a while, and yet terrible evil or other things that they did that were horrible, and they fell by their own sinful ways. And so here, this righteous branch already starts to show very clearly that this kingdom, this king is going to be different. He will be and is righteous. Okay? He is righteous compared to the other. And then, at the tail end of that verse, verse 15, what will this righteous branch do? He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, executing justice and righteousness would have been the core um, tenets of what a king's supposed to do. Think about, you know, we, we hear of kings and we, now we don't have kings in our country today, but you think about a king, you've seen enough movies and, and the like. Kings are supposed to bring justice. Supposed to bring the righteous, the right things in that land. Supposed to. As we see throughout the history, human kings are never going to be able to do that the way that they're supposed to. They're never going to be able to do it perfectly. I mean, even some of the most highly regarded kings throughout the history of, of Scripture. I mean, you have David, the clearest example, which sometimes he gets a little picked on, don't you think? Well, for rightful reasons. We have a lot in Scripture to tell us about him. But he was a right, he did so many great things. And yet even he had failings. And so here we see that this Lord, the righteous branch of David, will come in and execute justice and righteousness, and it will be perfect, exactly the way that it's supposed to be. And then the last verse here to look at, 
is, verse 16, In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Okay? So here's the, here's the difference between other parts of the prophet Jeremiah and, and talking about this righteous branch of David. It's no longer just talked about as that righteous branch. But here in verse 16, the Lord is our righteousness. Key word is our. Now this righteousness is imputed, given to the people. And I use that word imputed because we talk about it, especially in our circles, and when we study scripture, the fact that it's given to us. I know sometimes we hear it ad nauseum, right? But it's not what we earned it or deserved it, you know? But that our king... And his righteousness gives his righteousness to us. We get to be called righteous simply because he is. And he chooses to give it to us. And so, you see, as this prophecy looking forward, giving to that fact, not only is this king going to come, he's going to do it right, he's going to execute justice and righteousness perfectly, he's going to give his righteousness to us. That's a lot of hope. That's pretty wonderful news. I think I skipped over one thing I wanted to point out I can't find it it's not if I can't find it, it must not be that important right okay so point being as we look at next week in the first uh, first Sunday in Advent as I said the, the key focus on our Advent wreath and the other themes of the day prophecy and hope here we have a prophet giving such great hope he's, to, he's giving the hope that a king is going to come and finally do it right Okay. Secondly, a, a promise or a word of hope. God's going to keep his promises. What we see here in Jeremiah 33 is that he keeps his promises. He had promised to send a king through the Davidic line. Here he again saying he's going to do it. And then we see it, which is great as we get to read this in Advent because we know what comes at the end of Advent with Christmas. We know he sent his son. We know what his son came and did and who he is. So God promised something and he kept it. The other key emphasis that I, I encourage you to see here is this emphasis on um, just the kingdom in general. I've been talking a lot about kings and going on and on about kings today. Okay, but if you think about it back in the Old Testament, even prior to this time, you have in the Old Testament, uh, it's the kingdom and the priesthood also. So you have the priesthood and then the kingdom. Those were two central pillars to the people. Central pillars of that community and that society, of the way that the people lived. So God established it to have priests and then this kingdom that he established. Okay. So both of them are so central. And yet both of those pillars of their society, the kingdom and the, and the priesthood were destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem. And so with both of those pillars of the, of the community, the society being destroyed, likely people are wondering, well, God did promise it, but how could it be? It's destroyed. As they see with exile and the, and the destruction around them, they're thinking, well, God said he would do this, but look around. It's not here. How can God be true? And yet, God is giving this word of hope that it will be, despite what you see, despite the destruction, this will come. So again, another way that we see that God's word instills this hope in the people. And I think it's somewhat easy for us to think, yeah, God's going to do it. And look, he did it because look, just look in the timeline of history. Here we are today. We get to look back and see these things. But imagine if you were one of the people then and there. 
As I said, seeing that destruction, experiencing it, knowing that this is what's around you, and not necessarily seeing the end result yet. I'm going to have a lot more questions. Maybe a little more doubt. And yet still God gives, gives them his word. This is his word that they can hold on to and have hope in. Uh, the last note I'll have on this reading is that if you want uh, for the future, I'm not going to read it all, but Matthew chapter 1, verse 6 through 16. Um, and I just kind of cut that off a little bit. But if you start in Matthew chapter 1, beginning of the first verse, all the way through 16, there you have the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so there you have the actual scriptural record of how God said he would send the righteous branch through the line of David. And here in Matthew chapter 1, he did. You can see and you can trace through the scriptural record that God did send Jesus Christ, who is the righteous branch through the line of David. I said verse 6 to look at it because verse 6 is where you really get to David. You can read the other parts. Very important. But if you must get to the David part, go to verse 6. All right. Any questions or thoughts? I mean, I know it's only three verses, but again, powerful packed verses. So far on Jeremiah 33. You know, I will. Li I do listen online. Pastor Thomas gets a little more questions. You don't have to be scared to ask me questions, too. It's okay. No? No, he doesn't get a lot. He gets about two. <laughs> Maybe one or two, so that's not a whole lot. But anyways, let's move on to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Because that will be our epistle for next week. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9 through 13. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 9 through 13. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day. That we may see you face to face. And supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself. And our Lord Jesus. Direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. And for all. As we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Here ends our reading for next week. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, again, I feel that it's, it's, nece well, it's always necessary to have context when studying the scriptures. I actually had a... a, a out of safety, normally I wouldn't say someone's name on the radio and, you know, reference them. But here I really can't remember which professor, probably all of them. Someone I said, literally would just sit in classroom and say, context, 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 over and over. Okay. So let's look at the context here. First Thessalonians. You have this letter that Paul's writing to, this, to the Thessalonians, the church, the people in Christ's name here in Thessalonica. So again, think about Thessalonica as, we, as we've understood it to be through our uh, scripture and, and other studies. Thessalonica is a Gentile environment, okay? It's a Greek harbor town. And so there's a lot of um, idolatrous ways going on. I think sometimes uh, we, we emphasize those a little bit too much. We think, okay, how horrible is Thessalonica? But there were a lot of things, a lot of um, things that were going on very contrary to the way that God would have them being done, okay? Very much um, idolatrous ways, just living for the self in the moment. Um, one of the... 
stronger things that we especially will see addressed too in these letters to the Thessalonians is there was a lot of sexual sin, um, but really just the fact that it's this Gentile nation, this nation that didn't really know all about Christ Jesus and the word and the gospel, so living for their own ways and their own sinful desires. So Paul goes to them on his missionary journeys and he preaches there, um, but again we know it wasn't safe, so he, he leaves. So then we have the fact that here he has um, Timothy there. And Timothy is uh, in Thessalonica and giving this report back to Paul. And therefore, that is where we have 1 Thessalonians. This letter that Paul writes back to Timothy in the church in response to what he hears from Timothy. The fact that Paul was there, he had to leave, so he can't get back there. He's prevented from other things and thinks he can't get there. So Timothy goes. Timothy is with the people in Thessalonica, and he gives this report back to Paul. Then we have our scripture reading here from 1 Thessalonians. Paul's response to what Timothy had reported, okay? And basically, cutting to the chase, it's a great report, okay? And I mean, in some regards here, uh, I mean, there's obviously challenges. It's not like they were a perfect church, okay, by any means. Someone on the radio is going to hear that. I'm like, wait, we need to talk to this pastor. He's got it all wrong. I mean, obviously, there were challenges. But here in our verses, verses 9 through 13, if you were to just read those things, you'd see it's a great report, okay? So, verse 9, we look at it again. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. So he hear, Paul hears from Timothy that the Thessalonians had been standing firm in their faith. They weren't just forsaking it, giving it all up, and being swept away by the ways of the other people in that, in that land. They were standing firm. That's a great thing. It's a great thing when someone stands firm in the faith. And you're like, yeah, of course, obviously, right? But Paul responds to me and says, so for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For what thanksgiving can we give to God? Basically, how can we ever repay God for such a great report? Could we ever return such adequate thanks to God for this report that we've been given? It makes me think also, think about in our lives today, can we really ever give adequate thanks for the great work that God does in our lives and in the lives of those around us? Probably the technically correct answer, no, we never can. But to just keep giving thanks, not to be dismayed that we can't ever get perfect saints. So we keep giving thanks. Look at this, Paul is saying, we're giving thanks for what thanks can we give to him? But he keeps on giving thanks, he's, he's praising God, and that's all we can do. No, we can't ever measure up to the perfect, we can't ever repay him, we can't give him enough thanks. But we give him thanks with our life, our words, how we live, how we act, how we speak every single day. Everything that we can do can be lived back in a way to give thanks to God. I talk about this with, with confirmands uh, in 7th and 8th grade. You know, how can we give thanks to God? Usually like, well, you could thank him. That's usually the first answer I get. Thank you for that one. That was a wise answer. But then I go on, okay, but I think about, okay, so how can you thank God? And they say, well, you go to church. And then again, try to challenge them. I challenge you. Yes, come to church. Be here and worship. Give thanks and praise to God, by all means. Keep doing it, okay? But how else can you keep giving thanks? How can the rest of your life give thanks to God? Because simply living our life, desiring to live in the ways he's told us to live, giving him honor and glory by the ways we speak, that could just be a way of giving thanks. You know, I think about it with uh, when I was a child, I was one of those kids that I would get a, a present or receive a gift from someone, and I wanted to keep it just perfect. You know, I didn't want to break it because it was awesome. I loved it. But I ended up not using it. 
which did me no good. And then, now my mother knew me, of course, she's my mother, so she knows that I liked it and I enjoyed the gift, but what if it were someone else? Someone who doesn't know me as well, and they see, okay, I gave him this great gift, and yet, there it sits. Nothing. Ultimately, that's a way of giving thanks, right? That someone gives you a gift, and you give them thanks by using it, enjoying what you've been given? And so we can do that, too, in our lives. The fact that God's given us faith. Exercise our faith. Exercise the gifts that he's given us, and give them thanks. I know that that might seem like a little bit much read into here. I'm not trying to read too much into it, okay? But you see, and even just the short reading we have for next week, that Paul gives such great thanksgiving for what God has done in them. Verse 10, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That lacking in your faith, uh, it doesn't mean that, that their faith is defective, that they're not trusting in God, but rather just simply points to the fact they still need instruction. They're not at some level of perfect faith. They still need instruction. Don't we all? I like said it before I could say it. That's good. Don't we all? Myself, yourself, all of us. Okay? Don't we all? Like, that, should, that, could be a, that could be like a good sermon title. I like that. But, all right. We continue. Verse 11 through 13. So now, 11 through 13, Paul continues here. But now, I want you to also read 11 through 13 as a prayer. Because really, um, well, those who have studied Scripture greatly, I read from them, and we see that um, the commentary suggests that this is really in the form of a prayer. Okay? So, first part of this prayer, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus. Okay? So really here, first and foremost, see, he's not addressing two and separate. They're really the same. God and the Father and Lord Jesus, they're equated. Both divine, having the same great qualities. Just calling out the two persons by their own names. But equating them, I mean, they're the same God, and yet he ascribes them the same great um, glory and honor. So may God, our Father himself, and our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you. Again, Paul desires to be with them. In verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Now this increase, maybe you already can tell, but it's not about necessarily increasing in number. Although increasing in number by those who come to faith is always a great thing. But here specifically, he's talking about increasing spiritually. That again, they continue to be strengthened in their faith, continue to stand firm in this faith. So may you increase and abound in love for one another. And this love, um, it's specifically, if you see it, it says love for one another and for all. And I think there's a, there's a substantial reason to see in that, that it's not just for each other but for all people. And I, I don't think that this is, re I don't think this, this scriptural context means only for all those in the church, no, but rather for all people. Those in the church, those outside of the church, for all people that there are. So may your love continue to be for all people, especially and even against those who are persecuting you or those who are pressuring you to abandon your faith. Which comes back to the question, and we, we won't get into it today, but again, what does it mean to show love to all people? To show love to even those who are persecuting you? To show love to those who are pressuring you to leave the faith for their own ways or the things that they think would be better? That love can look very different. Okay? In our world today, we, we throw around the word love. This is kind of one of my things, by the way. All right? But one of those things I always really like to talk about because to me, I think it's really... Um, it's a key concept that Christ is always telling us to love. 
God is always telling us to love, but love doesn't always look like sappy. I'm going to pour my arms all over you, and I'm going to embrace every single thing you're doing exactly the way you're doing it. I'm going to say, yep, good, great, do it what you want. Sometimes love is speaking a difficult word. Or love, sometimes as Jesus says, is turning the other cheek. Or love is not being in your presence constantly, continually. Okay? Love can look very differently. But here we are instructed to show, or they are instructed to show love for one another and for all. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. This holiness before our God, so again, this is talking about in word and action. That before God, everything we do in thought, word, and deed be blameless in holiness. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That may God continue to strengthen you in your faith and your love until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because then that's the day when he takes all those in faith and they get to be with him. As I think we've well emphasized in our time here in the last few weeks and in the coming. Um, but there with all his saints. So the presence of all those who are believers in Christ Jesus get to be together. Okay. Any questions? Or thoughts on that reading? Good. Maybe just everything I've said has been very over-sufficient for everything we've done. I do. I tend to walk through it pretty, uh, a lot. But that's good. That's good. Okay, so uh, one thing I do want you to think about um, is, and this is just a theoretical question, okay? This isn't written in the scripture, but I want us to think about it. As we hear this, Paul is overjoyed by this report that they're, they're standing firm in their faith, Right? So he writes this, he's writing this response to them. I want you to think about how, what impact their faith could have on him, let alone others. Think about what, do you, what kind of impact do you think them standing first in the faith had on Paul? It's uplifting to Paul, right? Yeah, Paul's job wasn't easy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Paul's job was rather difficult. And he goes around. I mean, he's, there's persecution. He'll be chased from land to land, right? It's difficult. And so you think about to hear a report like this, especially for in Paul's position, a report like this, the people standing firm in their faith, that's encouraging. Keeps them going. Now, ultimately, you know the Holy Spirit's at work. Okay, I'm not denying that. The Holy Spirit would continue to do God's work in the way that he wishes and he wills. But this is the way I think the Holy Spirit is. Holy Spirit is strengthening these people in faith, and that gives then the Paul the opportunity to be strengthened in his faith. And think about today, in a similar way. People in your life, whether it be children, whether it be parents, maybe it's the other way around. We always think about, you know, par parents influence the child's faith, which is very crucial, but it can go the other way too. Or just siblings or, or friends or people here in our congregation. How can people seeing you standing firm in your faith impact their faith? Sometimes we forget about how big of an impact us being active in our faith. Doesn't mean, again, we're not like we have perfect faith. We all still need instruction, don't we all, right? But think about the impact our faith, exercising our faith, strengthening it, continuing to grow in it can have on other people. And then a side note that also is very important to me because I think it's important to the church at large. The impact that all of you have on all of our young people, no matter if they're your children or furthest thing related to you, is crucial. When people see you in worship, especially our youngest, 
That strengthens them. So keep doing what you're doing. Be here and be in worship. All right. You get a, so far, I am, I am encouraged by your re- report. Yes, very much so. Let's turn to our, our final reading for next week. And we will be in Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, verse 28 through 40. Now, as you're, as you're turning there, if you're in a paper Bible or just looking on the sheet I printed out for you. Next week, uh, the lectionary, again, the readings that are put together um, by others who have assigned different readings for different Sundays. Um, there's actually two Gospels. I got a choice. I was able to choose which one we use next week um, in the lectionary. There's two different readings from Luke, and I chose that we will go forward and we will read Luke 19 next week, which is the entrance, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's not like the other reading was bad, okay? Still scripture will still be great, but um, in our focus, I thought this would be most beneficial for us. So I know it seems a little bit like, whoa, where'd we go with Christmas? We have a whole baby Jesus to, to wait for and celebrate. But we move all the way to Luke chapter 19, 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Here ends our gospel reading for next week. So, as I began our class today, Advent emphasizing the the coming of Jesus Christ. Here we have him coming into Jerusalem right before his um, crucifixion and then resurrection. So, in verse uh, 28 through 40, we have Jesus drawing near to Jerusalem. And we see that there's a kind of threefold way of looking at this scripture. So first, you have the preparations for his entrance. That's really the majority of this scriptural passage, preparing for him to enter. Then you have the disciples' response to his entrance. And then the Pharisees' response to Jesus' entrance. And then the last, Jesus' response. Okay? So preparing and then all these th- this threefold way of looking at how people respond to him entering Jerusalem. Verse 28, we begin, and when he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So here there's a lot of scriptural um, discussion on how the way it's phrased, when he had said these things, he went on. A lot of people read this and they see this to be, pay attention. The way it's written, when he had said these things, is kind of another way that introduces another travel notice in, in the gospel. That as we see throughout the gospel, there's these travel notices describing he's traveling, he's moving on, so pay attention. 
because what's about to come is of rather important um, reading. Not that anything else is less important, but here, pay attention. He went on, he said these things, and here he went on Jerusalem. Pay attention to what is to happen. Interesting note as you look through um, this passage. Three times there's a, a pair of words that is, are said. Draw near. Okay? The words draw near are in verse 29. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany. Then in verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on his way down. And then in verse 41, and which is just beyond our reading. but And when he drew near and saw the city... He wept over it. So three times this phrase of draw near is, is, is in this reading. Because this, this draw near draws attention to what is about to happen, even more so than what's already got attention on it. Okay, so first he draws near to the cities, Bethpage and Bethany, which are just outside of Jerusalem. So he draws near to them. Then, in verse 37, he draws near to Jerusalem. He's not quite in it, but as he's drawing near, already on the way down. He can see it. So he's drawing near to these villages. Then he can see Jerusalem. And then the final, he's drawing near to the city itself. So you kind of have, again, a ten, you know, Scripture says, pay attention to what's to come. And then this threefold draw near draws us even more intent into what is to come. Okay. So then uh, we continue, verse 29. He drew near to, these, uh, to the Beth, Bethpage and Bethany. And he prepares for his entrance. So he sends his disciples in, two of his disciples. Doesn't really tell us which ones. Um, but you see a little bit later, um, verse 32, he said, the ones who were sent, key point is, is, is his disciples, the ones who are sent. He's sending them. So it's Jesus Christ sending his disciples to prepare for his entrance. This also uh, might remind us of the same preparations that Jesus made for the Lord's Supper, his last supper. Jesus sent his disciples in to prepare a room, a place for him to, to have the Last Supper with his disciples. So just these neat connections we see throughout Scripture. Uh, there are some people who, who might propose that, you know, Jesus had all this all set up beforehand. Quite frankly, I don't really um, go into that reading. I think that quite, this is showing us Jesus' omnisci omniscience. He knows all. He knows what's going to happen, and he knows what's to come, and so he knows this is what they'll find. He knows this is what, who they'll encounter. He tells them, go do this. They do it, and it's exactly as, as he knows. There's not, there are some people who, like I said, they think it's all pre-planned. He's got it all worked out and, 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 and talked with everybody. There's not a lot of scriptural evidence to support that. Okay? And also, to go into that denies us the ability to see the omniscience of our Lord. Jesus Christ, he, he is the great prophet, priest, and king. So prophet knowing, he knows what is to come. Okay? And he king, he has rule over all. So, so he knows what's to come. So to deny that, quite frankly, I think denies part of um, who our Jesus Christ is. His divine knowledge. So he tells them this is what you will find. They get in there and in verse 30, they find a colt on which no one has ever yet sat. So this, this cult being never yet sat on, not being used, would be another way to direct our attention to his royalty that's being set aside. The fact, having not been used, it would be meaning it's set yet apart, uh, aside for other purposes, for more royal um, purposes. And that's who Jesus Christ is. I mean, he is royal and he is holy, so he deserves that. But um, it's this cult of a donkey, which also ties into horses, 
normally would have been used for the military. So horses have such great royal, regal nature to themselves. We even see that when we look at horses today. And yet he comes in on a donkey, which is a more humble uh, way of doing it. And yet it's still not yet sat on. So you kind of have this tension throughout it where, okay, he's royal. He gets the royal privileges, but he is also not taking advantage of them to its full extent. Which isn't that the way we see so much of Scripture, so much of what Jesus Christ did in his earthly ministry. He alludes to some of this, and yet he doesn't take full advantage of what he could divinely. He shows them what's to come, but it hasn't yet come. Okay. So he's royal, but he's yet humble. Which, again, pointing out to our first reading with Jeremiah and the kings, it's different than most kings, right? Earthly kings would think, yeah, I'm the king, I des- I'm the royalty, I deserve it. Give me all the good frills and everything you can. Jesus isn't that kind of king. He's a different kind of king. Okay. Um, so, go a little bit further here. Okay, lost my place, sorry. So, uh, if we look at this, uh, there's a couple, two kind of passages that are seen to be very connected with this cult and untying it and bringing it here is, first is Zechariah 9, verse 9. If you want to write that down for later, again, that's Zechariah 9, verse 9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here, in this prophecy of Zechariah, we have God's people are called to welcome their king with joyful shouts. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. And then you see this preview of this king who's coming. Righteous, has salvation, humble, and mounted on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Don't we see that here in Luke? Their king is coming. He's on the colt of a, a donkey. He deserves great praise. Here he's coming. So again, we see that scripture is not just this book that's put together for useless and value, but this book that is well tied together. Look at what God's done with his word. Scripture interprets scripture. Scripture is fulfilled in other parts of scripture. We see it over and over again. Okay? And here's one quote I wanted to read for you. I was looking for it from, from Martin Luther in discussing this kind of king we have, how unique he is. Luther wrote, Here there is no armor, no power, no anger, no wrath. Only kindness, justice, salvation, mercy, and every good thing. Again, this contrast between the kings of the world and yet the king that Jesus Christ is. Okay. Um, Oh. One other note before we move on. It just, you're going to go away. You're going to know everything, hopefully, about this, these scripture passages. It's interesting. As I was reading the commentaries about this, I saw a note that I had never really paid attention to, uh, which maybe I should have. But what's interesting is you have this colt never yet sat on. And then if you look in Luke chapter 23, verse 53, this is talking about laying Jesus in the tomb after his death. He was to be laid in a tomb, and here's a direct quote, where there was not yet anyone lying, which I'd heard before, but to really draw those two together, he's this cult that is reserved, having not yet ever been sat on, and then this tomb, never yet having anyone laid in it, 
Again, setting it apart, it's special, it's, it's, it's holy, it's set apart for a different purpose. For Jesus Christ, who deserves that, um, the very best, the very best set apart for him. Alright, so we continue, uh, and we get now, uh, he's made his preparations, then we get into verse 37. He's drawing near, and there's great multitude, about midway through verse 37. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works they had seen. So this great multitude of disciples likely suggests it wasn't just the 12, but even the 72 disciples and many others who were there. They were praising him for the mighty works they had seen. The fact that they had seen the earthly miracles he had done. The great mighty works he had done right there in their presence. Which here is an interesting thought of that. Is that of the gospel writers... Luke only records six miracles compared to the other gospel writers that record far more miracles. And yet here in Luke, chapter 19, these disciples are praising him for the great miracles that they had seen. Now, doesn't mean that, I'm not saying anything of, you know, to deny any part of scripture, but it's interesting that even the few that they had, that's recorded in Luke, they're still yet there praising him for what they had seen. And so, even if they don't fully know or understand his divine kingship, yet they do and give him glory and praise. So even as Luke only records, so, so my main point here is, Luke may only record six of the others that he could have recorded, and yet Luke still records them giving him great praise and glory for his divine kingship and, and um, glory. The fact that even if they haven't seen it all, even if they haven't understood it all, yet they are still there recorded giving him praise. The interesting, interesting point I was, I was directed to. Point being that even when we can't recognize and understand his full divine kingship, it's still real, and it's, it still will come. Then it's their response. The disciples say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke, as compared to the other gospel writers, uses king. The other gospel writers use the coming one. Again, as we draw these distinctions between the gospel writers, it doesn't pit one over the other, that one's inaccurate or not, definitely not any of that. But just that, that we see, again, God uses these human men to write down his holy word as it's inspired by him. And so there's differences. And these different gospel writers point us, as the hearers, to different emphases of what God, who God is, what he's done, and what he will continue to do. So Luke uses this king, um, emphasizing the king entering Jerusalem and receiving this great kingdom promised by the Father. If we were to read the other Gospels, the coming one, that would directly draw our ears and minds in Advent, of course, the one who's coming. When you think about Advent coming into this world. Um, but then we have uh, this other, other half of the response, peace in heaven and glory in the highest which directs our ears, if we're very familiar with Scripture, to Luke chapter 2, verse 14, when we, uh, we have the Gloria in excelsis at the birth of Jesus. The angels singing great Gloria and praise in chapter 2 of Luke, which ultimately then foreshadow here in chapter 19, the disciples giving glory to Jesus. Again, just the beauty of how interconnected it is. And if you think about it, when those angels came, what did they, where did they say peace was? Peace on... Earth. 
But here, it says peace on in heaven. It's just, again, we see this fullness of Scripture, how Jesus Christ, when he came, did absolutely bring peace on earth. But he also brings peace in heaven. And that's not to say that there wasn't peace in heaven and heaven was some discord array, right? Because we know heaven is this great, glorious place. But we see the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh and his sacrifice and what he will do as the, the, the king above all kings. It brings peace everywhere. Peace on earth and in heaven and everywhere. Just fullness, totality of his peace brought for his people and for this world. Then the Pharisees respond, typical to what we would expect, having known our understanding of Scripture. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Teacher being a, just a term that would have, they would have generally used to refer to him. Had they been considered maybe one of his disciples, if it had been his disciples saying this, they would have said, Lord. So we know that as they're calling him teacher, it's not them saying, oh, you're the, you're the Lord. No, rather, they just, it's a title of respect that he would have at least received from others, including the Pharisees. So they say to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Um, and so, again, just to accent the theme of rejection, that the rejection even here, I mean, he's seen it before, but even here as he's now going into Jerusalem to experience the worst ultimate rejection he experienced on the cross. Then Jesus gets his word in. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Isn't that interesting? Even if these people were silent, the stones would cry out. The inanimate, completely not alive stones would cry out. Isn't that what he deserves? I mean, he is the great high king. He deserves that. And I know we didn't get to read it, but verse 41, Jesus nears the city and he weeps over it. That's kind of, to me, I think we, we see that even part of his response. And we can see a parallel there. As we didn't read the whole book of Jeremiah, obviously. But in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet, he laments. He's weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem and the first temple. And then here we have Jesus Christ himself who's lamenting over Jerusalem again. Okay, you just see all these interesting ties between Scripture all throughout. Any questions or thoughts? No? Oh, there's one. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jen. I always, when I think about the donkey and the, the, the stable, the manger, it just to me was more an illustration of the humiliation. Did that part of it. Yeah, I mean, especially the illustration. I mean, you have him in a manger with a donkey, and, and the full scene of it does paint a, a stronger picture of his, yeah. of his humility. And we talk about, I talk about, I was just discussing this in one of our confirmation classes. Jesus has his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. And we think about state of humiliation, is that all the, the humanly things that Jesus Christ did that he didn't have to do because he was God, he could have done otherwise. And so we fit in there, riding on a donkey's colt, colt you know, lying in a manger, and then we go all the fact that he suffered and experienced all these human things, draws out that point. So, it, it's, uh, sorry, go ahead. The question being, if, do you think when they say the stones cry out, do you think that's creation? Um, I don't see why not. I think, I didn't read anything to that specific point. Let me just first say, uh, I think that, it, yes, it, would, it, it is a good reference, at least, to creation. 
But I think it, with using stones rather than, could he have said the trees or, or the birds, the stones being so inanimate, having no ability to even make any noise or cry out, draws even more stark contrast to look at what would even give him the praise and glory, even if these people didn't. But I do think that, at least to creation, yes, but I think it goes maybe a little bit more, a little stronger than that. A good question. All right. I know we have like three minutes left on the radio, but I'm going to end us early with a word of prayer because uh, I feel like we've covered it very thoroughly today. So let, would you please pray with me? Gracious Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the, the fact that your Holy Spirit has been with us as we study this word because we know that you are with us always and forever. We pray, Lord, that now you would strengthen us in faith to go out into this world so that our faith, too, may be shared and shown with others, not just in our words, but in our actions, too. That, Lord, we may continue to share the great gospel message of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that all may hear, and all of us together may be with you in glory forever and ever. We pray these things and all things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.